Welcome to Capitalist Adventures, where we hope to shed light on the diverse puzzle pieces that make up the VC community. My name is Akash, and this is my co-host, Jonathan. Thanks, Akash. I'm really excited to kick off today's episode with my good friend, Cleta Martiro from Glasswing Ventures. So Cleta focuses a lot of her attention on the enterprise and security spaces, but what I really admire her for is that she's also one of the biggest champions uh, of early stage entrepreneurs and college students who want to go into VC that I know. And I'd love to dig into that all a little bit later. But for now, welcome to the podcast, Cleta. How are you doing? Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Akash. I'm doing very well. I'm very happy to be here. We are so excited to have you. Let's start this podcast off with a little bit more about your background. So I know that you were born in Albania mm -hmm. and you came to the U.S. Um, at a very early age. So I'd love to hear more about that experience. It's yeah. really rare to meet someone from that region, especially in the entrepreneurship and VC space. Tell me about the experience growing up there, the journey, and a couple of fun facts about Albania. Yeah, absolutely. So I was born in Albania and I left the country at 13 years old to pursue better education opportunities. So at the time, so we're talking about the early 90s, communism had just fallen and Albania was going through many socio-political, economical changes, causing a lot of instability and just a lack of opportunities in general. Being brought up in a family where education was the foundation and the main pillar to opening doors to a better future, my family and I decided that it would be better for me to pursue education elsewhere. And elsewhere was the US. While my family stayed back, I went to live with my aunt in Seattle at the time. And then as she moved to Boston, I moved with her until college. No, that's remarkable. What was the um, biggest culture shock you experienced coming over? <laughs> at 13, I didn't know any English. So just learning the language was the big one and everything was new. So everything you're learning, everything you're seeing, everything was new. And the good thing at that early age is that you can adapt really quickly. So the ability to grasp things, adapt, comprehend, learn, reiterate, that was just a, I would say a trade that I had to do very early age at a lot of different things from language to culture to way of studying in high school and then college to the way you you represent yourself in a different culture and tradition so all of those things I, I i learned quickly but today though i'm very fully immersed i celebrate thanksgiving and i do celebrate the fourth of july so you are you know essentially a multicultural person now you've you know grown up in multiple places experienced different languages and different cultures that's incredible so you went albania to seattle to boston and that's an awesome journey so you've got the the west coast experience you're now on the east coast you studied econ math and spanish as i understand it at mount holyoke and then you got your mba at kellogg and yeah. you were a data scientist product manager, you've done a lot of things. Can you walk me through that career journey? I pursued a degree in econ and math and Spanish at Mount Holyoke. And during my undergraduate years, that's where that passion for technology started. All throughout my college internships, I interned at AI startups. So rather like e-commerce AI startups or marketplaces of robotics. 
and I just got that tech bug. So being in a in a team of five or 10 people and being able to look at different areas, different spaces, playing multiple functions at the same time, that was incredible. And that was an environment that not only I enjoy, but I thrilled at. Post-graduation, I, I went into advertising with um, in a strategy and analytics role. So again, very numbers and strategy heavy. And again, I learned that where I was really passionate about was everything about the tech behind what I was doing. That's why I moved to a series C, D at the time, Social Flow, which is a social media startup in New York. So I moved from Boston to New York, and that's where I put on my data science and PM hat. All of those prior experiences pinnacled at Social Flow. And I think that has been transformative in helping me to move to to get my MBA and then now how it was helping me in my role in the investment team at Glasswing. The role that I played at Social Flow was PM and data science. So that sits at the cross section of technology. So dev teams, engineering, and oftentimes go-to-market teams. And the experience itself provides a very unique insight into how businesses come up with product ideas, vet those ideas, and decide which ones are worthy of pursuing given the companies a startup's limited resources and market landscape. So being in that position meant that I was helping teams prioritize features, make different trade-offs in the product roadmap, by incorporating the vision of the company, as well as what the, the market would look like and what customer demands were, how and what we could do to win over competition. So it was a combination of knowing the product creation process from beginning to end and being able to prioritize product developments given the research on the size and growth of existing industries. Some, actually, sometimes more importantly, when I think back is the ability to assess the viability of how a new idea is being presented for a market that does not exist yet. And that's something that in my role now, I keep thinking of, especially when we think about new markets coming up, new overlaps, what the dynamics are and so forth. So in, in my view, that PM role is puts me in a very good position and, and currently where I'm investing in an early stage. So Glassman is seed pre-seed. And when, when you think about it, we're, we're investing in companies that are either are two to four quarters away from launching in market to a couple of quarters of having been in the market. So when we go in to evaluate investments and then help them once they become part of the portfolio, I think the understanding of the product developments, development needs, the features to be developed, or all of those make, make them unique. I've heard a lot about how product managers have just such a holistic skill set. They sit at the intersection of the engineering teams, the sales teams. They have to understand engineering ops, sales ops. They have to understand product development timelines. They have to understand how to sell the product, how to market the product. There are just so many skill sets that, that are required to be able to be a good product manager. And I completely understand why so many people also advocate for product management backgrounds to, to be good VCs. I'm curious, what's the single most important skill that you think a good VC needs to have? And looking back at your product management and data science experience, you know, was there anything that you were lacking in those experiences that you had to learn while you were on the job in VC? A skill you think a product manager or data scientist um, 
who was focusing heads down in those roles probably needs to work on or focus more on if they want to make the transition over to VC. I, I get that question a lot, especially from students that I work with, which path do I take to become a VC? And we all know that there isn't one direct path. And especially when I think of PM, like I, I did PM, I did a science. So it was all of those skills combined. To me, when I look at that question and holistically, I think of someone who has the passion, has the grit to do something, to change something, has the passion for, to me, I had the passion for tech, I had the passion for AI, and I saw the opportunity and the vision and how disruptive it would be in so many ways to help businesses, to help people. So th th there was the impact. So as long as there is that grit, that intellectual cur curiosity, that, that passion for something, I, th I think it's all of those that drive you to gain whatever the skills that you want to have to become a good VC. So if you have all of those and you want to go into ML ops, for example, you go and learn what ML ops are about and you go and learn what all the tools there are and how they interact, integrate, implement with each other. So I would see it as the opposite. It's the inner out. It's like what comes, what you really like, and then you go in and learn and then get more hands-on experience on, on those specific areas. I'm loving this conversation so far, Clara, and wanted to move the conversation a little bit towards Classroom Ventures and uh, your specific role at the fund. Now, for those who haven't heard about Glasswing or don't know about Glasswing, it's an early stage VC firm investing in uh, next-gen AI and frontier technologies. Now, talk to us about the thesis that you have and what do you really mean by next-gen and frontier technology startups? And are there specific sectors that you're really focused on yourself? And perhaps you can talk about the companies that you've been looking at over the last uh, six months or so, but given that there's so much that's changed just in the last 18 months, Mm -hmm. So one, I'd like you to talk about your thesis and two, perhaps how has that evolved during the pandemic and how is that now unfolding given that we're all kind of going back to work in one way or the other in the physical form? So as you mentioned, Glasswing, we invest in early stage companies that develop and leverage artificial intelligence and frontier tech in software products and platforms for the enterprise and, and cybersecurity markets. And we call that intelligent connect and intelligent protect. So with the AI at the core of the solutions, we believe that the connect investments are in the enterprise and platforms and protect in cybersecurity companies that will become market leaders with differentiated products, dominant market positions, and significant barriers to entry. A couple of themes in Intelligent Connect that we'll look at is smart data infrastructure, human augmentation, automation, intelligent verticals, and on the protect side, we have intelligent detection and tracking, we have cyber and physical security, coordinated defense. In terms of stage, we invest in seed plus and pre-seed. And so far, we've had a geography focused predominantly on the East Coast. How that's changed over the pandemic is our thesis, our strategy, our themes have, and stage have all remained the same. I think the geography has blurred lines now. It's a little, I think we've seen that across the VC ecosystem. All the teams are, are remote. All the teams are working from anywhere in the world. So geography has become less of a criteria and the lines are a little bit more blurred as to where exactly are these companies headquartered in? 
No, I'm glad you brought that up. So does that mean that your breadth of search is now increased just because of the pandemic or has it always been wide given that cybersecurity, ML, AI, all of these are technologies that can easily be deployed. Doesn't matter where you're building this company. I'm guessing the audience and the clients are global, global and worldwide. So the focus is still to invest in companies that are headquartered in the US. In terms of geography, the thesis has remained completely the same. And the only part that's changed is just, there's more influx of companies coming in. But as long as they have a arm of this exec team in the US, then it's, it's definitely on thesis. But if, say, the majority mm-hmm. of the team is somewhere outside of the US or Canada, we include Canada in our East Coast corridor geography, then it would be a different story. So there's been a lot more companies coming in. I mean, and I think that's because of how easy it is to get into VCs Zoom these days, right? But in terms of focus and in terms of how we're looking at things, it's pretty much the same, just blurry lines within the US. Got it. Now, given that cybersecurity, ML, AI, these are very tech-focused and sometimes very nuanced and need to have specialized information and knowledge, How do you look at it from an analysis perspective? Like when you're looking at companies, what are some of the things that really need to stand out for you, for you to even consider bringing the deal to the table? So could you talk to us about what you look at these companies and how are you evaluating them on a day-to-day basis? Everyone looks at the team, especially when the early stage, the team is really important. How long they've worked together, where they're coming from, what their connections are, what the network is. Before, we used to love visiting their offices as well to see how the, the culture within the team worked. Then we move on to the whole the, the market, competition, size, growth, et cetera, et cetera. When it comes to the tech specifically, we we do have venture partners on the team. One of them was used to be the CTO of Nuance for 15 years. And then we have a whole platform with 40 plus advisors that are executives, experts in both the intelligent connect and intelligent protect areas that we focus on. And those are advisors exclusive to Glasswing that we leverage for any type of questions that we have when it comes to assessing is the tech real tech? Is the AI real AI? Are the data sets that they're training on? Are they scalable? Do they work? Do they not work? What's fishy? What's not fishy? So all of those questions, we we get answers from the bigger Glasswing family. Very interesting. Now, we also observe that you have, you said you have this beautiful privilege where you're a board observer of seven portfolio companies. What's that experience been like for you? What are the biggest mistakes that you're seeing that entrepreneurs and board members make these days, given that companies are growing faster than ever before? Talk to us a little bit about your experience being a board observer in terms of what makes for good uh, meetings, both from a founder perspective and Mm. the other side, what makes a good board observer or a member? I feel very fortunate to be a board observer. I know a lot of VCs, for example, they only have partners who are directors on the board and those frequent the board meetings. So at Glasswing, it was a little bit different in the sense that all non-partners are able to participate and work active work actively with the portfolio companies in the board setting which is honestly one of the things that i love glassing about is that everyone in the investment team is either a director 
or typically someone more junior like myself takes an observer seat. So in many ways, you're getting that incredible training when it comes to board setting and about board governance. One thing actually that we pride ourselves is, is, is being extremely supportive to our founders in a board setting. So a lot of the heavy lifting and a lot of the work occurs outside of the boardroom as it should be. And the boardroom discussions are usually um, really an evaluation of the work that has been happening outside of the board. So even during our partner meetings, when we talk about portfolio updates or upcoming board meetings, it, the expectation is that we talk about what we have done for you know XYZ portfolio and to, to earn our seat in the board. So whether it's landing a new customer or helping them recruit someone on the exec team or helping them with financing introduction, whatever the facet or the stage uh, may be. So really we see ourselves as a, an extension of the management team and going to a board meeting or board setting with that mindset, it's much more rewarding for me to learn. And also you get to see all of the, from board to board, all of these different cultures within the board dynamics and the other VCs. And we've been fortunate to work with the VCs that have the same mindset as ours. So for me, it's been an incredible training to see those interactions, to engage with other VCs, to engage with the management team. And I feel very close the pain of the founders, the pain of helping to building a go-to-market slide or, or finding the right category in a market. Just sometimes things like that, I, I very much sympathize and very passionately love to help. So what I'm hearing here is good board members, you know, are very fluid in their ability to help in many different facets and also display a lot of founder empathy and are able to, to help in many different ways, be around the company. And it's been a great learning experience for you as well. And so on that note, I, I know that there's an initiative that you're very, very passionate about. And as you were talking about being a board observer and all the responsibilities that came with that and being behind closed doors and helping them from a behind the scenes perspective, I wanted to hear more about what you're doing with Ignite, which for all of the listeners here, Ignite is the first program of its kind that enables aspiring VCs from universities across Boston, specifically right now and beyond to connect and receive hands-on experience sourcing startups and evaluating deals. So it's kind of like a mini boot camp, so to speak, for aspiring up and coming VCs who are still in school. So Clay, it sounds like in the same way that as a board observer, you're listening and observing and seeing how these companies are running and then pushing them and supporting them and helping them with growth, helping them with marketing, helping them with recruiting and hiring and just different aspects and utilizing different skills and different networks to help build the company up. You're also behind the scenes helping students who want to become VCs, giving them skills, giving them opportunities and helping them push themselves up into their career into VC as well. So tell me about Ignite. What is it? What's the scope of it? And why did you decide to start this? I, I love Ignite. <laughs> you said it, Jonathan. Ignite is, is a program that we officially announced a couple of months ago now. I've, I've lost track of time. We started it a year ago. And being in Boston, there's so much exposure to so many students and universities, and especially where the location of Glasswing office, we're 15 minutes away from the biggest campuses in Boston. So there were a lot of students who asked about how do you get into VC? What's the VC? And, and especially they, those students who were interested, they got very involved with their campus 
entrepreneurship ecosystem. Talking to a couple of students, seeing what other programs were out there, how how those help students, we noticed that there was a desire to learn from, or the, the, the same pain point from similar profiles of students in different schools. So the idea incepted that why don't we build a program that actually helps the students really become good analysts at the same time we teach them how we teach them how to source companies how to find good companies and we bridge that gap that students with similar mindset and similar desires and passions really haven't hadn't met each other and again they were in the same radius as we were so that was the first conversations with that in mind we actually did a soft launch with one of the um, harvard undergraduate capital partners which is the vc club equivalent of harvard and mit and we noticed the students absolutely loved it then we expanded that to other schools with northeastern has an idea accelerator then we added tufts bc babson and then we had a couple of students from princeton so it, it, it became there was way more demand and again this was a couple of months after we did the soft launch with harvard and mit how the program is actually built with a student is that the first cohort was about 30 students where again it was all virtual the hope is to go hybrid now in person and through zoom given it's covering a little bit more than just the, the boston area and it's split between educational where the first the one of the first questions is like what do i ask a company how do i get to know how do i what do i ask when i talk to a founder so brainstorming a list of questions if you would say and working together bringing talking to founders on their campuses and bringing those deals to us and we have mock partner meetings when someone would actually bring the profile of a company they would talk about the team the the tech the solution the pain point market and so on and then people who were interested in digging into the due diligence a little bit more they would partner together and a lot of these partnerships actually happened with students from different schools so in that way there was this dynamic collaboration between students who had the same passions the same desire the same aspiration to become a vc but had never had the chance to meet each other and take this at a, at a university level right so the students and the accelerators or groups of clubs that we've partnered with are the ones that these schools represent the hope is to expand this to more northeastern so for the next year we've we've included new york where we're looking at columbia we included a couple of more schools in the east coast and a lot of these honestly have been just because students have reached out and said i i've heard xyz about the program i love to learn this i want to be part of it I'm really curious to see how, even sometimes students who want to be founders, entrepreneurs, I want to see what VCs look for. So when I start my own company, at least I have those things in mind. So I've loved this program. I've loved working with the students. I wish I had this kind of opportunity when I was undergrad, because I'm sure I had no idea what VC was at the time. And it's just been a, a great year, actually. And I'm very much looking forward to the next cohort. I, I had similar issues when I was an undergrad. We didn't have a business major. We had a business minor with a couple of classes, but there really wasn't anything educational around the entrepreneurship or the venture capital space when I was at Rice. And it wasn't until I went to Cornell for my MBA where I got 
all of that education that I was missing in the span of two years in my MBA program. So it's great that you're offering this as a resource to, to young folks who really are just trying to achieve their goals, who want to learn and who want to learn early. And I'm kind of curious about this program for each of these clubs and groups that you're working with at, on these campuses. Is it open for anyone to join Ignite or are you picking and choosing and looking for specific qualities and participants? And extending that question a little bit further, if you had to boil it down to one or two words or one or two qualities, what, what, what do you hope the participants get out of this at the very end or what quality or what skill set do you hope they will learn or do you hope they will internalize by the end of the Ignite uh, experience? So there is an application for students to apply. We have a selection criteria in the application process that we go by and then interviews with members of the team. So in that sense, there is a process in terms of become a, an Ignite fellow. When it comes to the criteria that I want the students to leave Ignite with, I think it would be that greater intellectual curiosity for more things or to be able to evaluate deals both qualitatively and quantitatively. And the second one is that the power of networking. There's so much learning and I'm a big, big um, fan of networking. And, and Jonathan, that, that's how we met too. And that's how we've become friends. Can I add a question for you here? And this perhaps goes back to your own personal experience when it comes to investing. Talk to us about your personal experience when it came to investing. If you could share one example uh, of a portfolio company that you were able to source, run diligence on, and then make an investment. And how do you end up supporting them post? It'll be great for a lot of people to understand what is the day-to-day -day of a VC job and what really goes into actually winning deals because it's not that easy. It's such a competitive market. And there's so much option right now for founders to pick and choose from. It's not as easy and rosy as it seems. That's true. But we all enjoy it, don't we? <laughs> yes, we do. We do it every day. We complain about it sometimes and often, but we still come and do it every day because we love founders. <laughs> the daily answer is no, you shouldn't be in this job. <laughs> we love it. We love it. No, it is fun. It has ups and downs like any job, right? But it, it, it's a lot of fun. No days like the other. So I think to me, that's what makes it so interesting and then so dynamic. And there's never a boring day. To go back to your question, Akash, I'll speak to a deal that I sourced and did the diligence and all of that. And it's not announced yet. So I'll, for the sake of that, I'll keep the name incognito. But it was actually a deal that one of the Ignite fellows brought to me and we talked about it and it was very interesting about what they were doing, how they were looking at the problem. It was very, very early. So for us, it was a pre-seed deal and it was in COVID times too. So it was my first deal during COVID time. So not the most ideal environment to invest. I met with the founders, I met with the team, I got to know them a little bit, what their backgrounds and then, and I looked at the space a little bit myself. Who else was in the space? What, what were these founders doing before this? And then I talked to them again. Sometimes there were recurring calls to be kept up with how what they were thinking, how they were advancing. And in those calls, 
you get to know a different side of the founder, right? You, I mean, you, you have dogs running and you have cats running across your keyboard. You have a family in the background. So you get to know them at a, a little more of personal level. That's how relationships are built, especially with founders too. Many people say when you invest in a company, it's a long-term marriage. And then from there, we leverage, as I mentioned, our advisors or our partners for tech due diligence. So there's that piece that we check off. And if so, we have follow-up questions and we follow up with them. We do follow-on calls and then we do work on market, how they see the market, how we see the market. Do we agree? Do we disagree? What are competitors in the market? How are the competitors doing in comparison to the company? Why are they stronger? Where are they stronger and weaker and so forth? And what's the differentiator or the secret sauce? Once we look at those, we go ahead and then look at the business model. So does it make sense? Who are the customers? Who are they targeting? With this, actually, how we help is that we introduce them to potential customers in our network. We try to figure out, is this really a pain point? If so, who is the right buyer? If so, are they willing to buy? If so, how much are they willing to buy? Are the price dynamics correct? Are they thinking about it? Is there another way to think about it? And then, you know, it's, uh, it's the joy of writing the memo. <laughs> it's the joy of having everyone meet the company. And that process takes some time and it takes, again, it's a relationship. How you're feeling with the founders, how you're feeling about the business, how they're seeing it, how it's scaling and, and so forth. So it, it's all of these in, in one. And then you try to take a breather and look at the big picture too. And that's where the Glassman team comes in. You have the partners, you have everyone who's been looking at this team. And we always have someone who looks at it with fresh eyes in the investment committee. Yeah, I mean, Jonathan also can speak to it. It's been a rough year for everybody, especially who's been investing during the pandemic. No, obviously not being able to meet founders is, is a big challenge, but it's a story. It's a story that we can share with a lot of people on podcasts like these and just retrospectively thinking about how our personal investment styles have changed over the years. So it's uh, it's great that you were also able to like source and make an investment during the pandemic. It's a great learning experience in, in my opinion. I also really like the fact that you that you really emphasize the relationship building aspect of it. I and mean, it seems to be a kind of a common thread through everything that you've done is building relationships, understanding who you're talking to, basically becoming friends with the people that you end up working with, whether that's the team around you, whether that's the startups that you invest in, whether that's other VCs that, that you meet at random events who, who can- Do you know really anyone, help. Jonathan? Do you know anyone? <laughs> I may know a person or two. <laughs> it's just great to see all these networks converge together. So- I wanted to ask you a little bit about a couple of things happening in the current events world right now. I've noticed recently around the cybersecurity space is that the EU has been talking a lot about prohibiting real-time biometric identification or live facial recognition, and it seems to be a very controversial topic among a lot of organizations and among a lot of people. You know, I'm really curious about your thoughts on the use and regulations around facial recognition, biometric technologies, and other similar uh, types of services and technologies being used today. Here in the U.S., there's just been a lot of conversations around Clearview AI 
and the, their use for even police work, for example, and how ethical it might be to be able to use biometric technologies or identification technologies that might have significant biases embedded within them. It comes down to the, the whole PII aspect of it, because when it comes to facial recognition, it's considered a PII piece of data. We actually have a portfolio company where they have the ability to do crowd intelligence. They do have the ability to do facial recognition, but they're not just because of, of this reason. With GDPR in Europe, with that extending with the CCPA here, and I, I remember, I recall at the beginning of this year, actually, there were efforts from the big, the big tech giants like Facebook, Google to, to expand the GDPR CCPA to become a federal law. So I think it's moving slowly, but there is a move to expand this. I think there are other ways to um, collect the data that you need from, if you need to collect facial recognition or biometrics, there are other ways of identifying you without collecting that specific type of data. We, we invested in a company that collects data such as the way you type, the way you move your mouse, and it's, it's a machine learning, so it's continuous behavioral learning about you. So when you go in, for example, to log into a, your computer or to log into website, that software lays on top of it. And if it's not the exact way you type or the exact way you do all of these things that you don't even think about, your gate and all of that, your location, everything that gets connected, it won't let you in. So in that way, you're not providing any, any PII data. Another security company of ours that we have just invested in, their vision is letting enterprises have control of the data that they want to share. So for example, if I want to um, become an Uber driver, the only thing that Uber needs to know is that I'm above 18. No, nothing else about my address and all that. So it gives me access or it gives me permission to let them know, hey, okay, you can see what I want you to see. So I think that's where this overlap of security, compliance, privacy, that there is this overlap that's taking place right now. And I think we'll see it even more in the next few years. I mean, even with COVID right now, sharing their COVID card everywhere, that's against HIPAA, so, but everyone is doing it. So there's gotta be a better way to protect our privacy. So before we wrap up this conversation, I took the liberty of looking at a couple of your tweets and I just wanted to ask about one of them because I think this one was relatively recent and I'm very curious about the story behind this, but give me the confidence of a former Goldman banker turned into an entrepreneur. And I feel like I know where this is going, but what prompted you to, to write this tweet? And I just found that hilarious uh, because a lot of <laughs> entrepreneurs, just looking at all of the outsized valuations that I'm seeing in this market right now, and some of the demands that entrepreneurs have been making during recent fundraising rounds, I'm sure we were both experienced uh, the similar things. Yeah, um, that's funny. Honestly, th there are some founders that have so much confidence and I love that. It's a wonderful thing, but some who are just doing entrepreneurship as a stint or as something that I want to take a break from my trading days or it's not a stint job or not something you can do for a day or a week or a year, it's, it's all in, it's all in. We encounter those funders too, who are looking for something, we're looking for an escape, we're looking for something, a career change. Entrepreneurship is, is hard. There's so much that goes into building a company, starting an idea, building a tech, 
that it should not be taken as a stint job or, or something that you can do easily. So that, that's where the inspiration of the tweet came from. Yeah, that makes no. sense. So basically, there's no part-time founders. Don't take this as a side gig. Don't do this with half energy, half effort. That's the lesson to take away here. And that is the right mindset. And you are correct. There are many founders who, who walk in thinking they can hold a full-time or a part-time job while trying to you know, raise money for, for a side gig or side project or an, another startup company. And it just usually doesn't work out. You're right. Multitasking is a skill, but when it comes to career multitasking, that's not something an entrepreneur should do. Yep. So Clayda, thanks so much for joining us on this episode of the Capitalist Adventures podcast. Had an awesome conversation. I hope you enjoyed your time here as well. I really enjoyed learning everything from the Ignite program to your background, to your thoughts on cybersecurity and everything in between. So before we jump off, Clayda, how can our listeners find you or how can they connect with you? Um, very active on LinkedIn, very active on Twitter. I, I, I very much love to connect with people and network. So ping me, send me messages. Fantastic. Thank you so much again, Kleda. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you guys. I, it, it's, it's, it was a great conversation. Loved, loved being here. And thank you for having me. Fantastic. And if you like this episode, like Jonathan and I did, please go ahead, rate and review and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. And we'll see you soon on the other side. 